This is Epicenter, episode 455, with guests Stefan Goslin and Vasily Shapovalov. So welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, processes, and people driving decentralization and the blockchain revolution. I'm Brian Crane, and I'm here with my co-host Felix Lutsch. So today we're going to speak with Stefan Goslin and Vasily Shapovalov. Um, they're from the Flashbots team and the Lido team. Uh, so just a few words on that. So Flashbots, of course, is kind of the team that's really pioneered the work around MEV, which has become one of the most important topics in crypto. You know, across all blockchains, people are worrying and thinking about this topic. And Flashbots done you know, really pioneered this, this field and focusing on Ethereum and how to address this uh, on Ethereum. And then, of course, Vasily is uh, from Lido, which has become uh, the leading liquid staking solution. And especially on Ethereum has, you know, a huge amount of stake and uh, has also kind of taken on a key role in sort of shaping the future uh, of Ethereum and of staking on Ethereum. Now, uh, just before we go into the episode, uh, briefly about our sponsor. So our sponsor is uh, Tally Ho. So Tally Ho is redefining the wallet as a public good. You can think of it like a community-owned alternative to MetaMask. Uh, with Tally Ho, you can enter the metaverse with a Web3 wallet that's fully community-owned and operated. It's the first wallet that's also a DAO. So... And their co commitment to community ownership and public goods goes beyond the wallet. So, for example, they became one of the first sponsors of EtherJS, uh, an open source JavaScript library helping to develop this connector to Ethereum. And they also uh, pledged some 2.5% of their tokens to a Gitcoin aqueduct. So head over to tally.cash, T-A-L-L-Y.cash, to try out uh, the wallet and play with its features. So with that, let's go into uh, the episode. So thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, maybe we can, maybe we can just do like very brief intros from each of you before we sort of, you know, get into the meat of the, the topic. Maybe Stefan, do you want to go first? Yes. Uh, quick intro. Hey, I'm Stefan. Um, I'm one of the co-founders over at uh, Flashbots. Um, I focus on everything that's uh, product product architecture related. Um, and yeah, one of the big focuses for me over the last year has been figuring out an MEV solution for proof of stake Ethereum. Uh, so I'm super excited to be here chatting with you all about it. Hey, I'm Vasily. Uh, I work with uh, Lido uh, as like basically a tech lead over Lido. And uh, we are doing uh, liquid staking for uh, basically, we want to be a DAO that builds liquid staking for everything worth staking. Currently, we are on Ethereum, uh, Polygon, uh, Solana, uh, Polkadot, Kusama, and building one for Avalanche. And uh, on Ethereum, we uh, uh, is the leading liquid staking protocol. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's just do a little bit of context uh, for people. 
I mean, we've done a whole bunch of episodes about MEV, but still, like, some people, it's a complex topic. So maybe we can just do a very brief intro, like, what is MEV and, like, why is it important? Okay, I can take this on. So MEV is sort of all the value that a privileged actor within a system like a blockchain is able to extract from their position as this privileged actor. When it was initially sort of brought to the um, to, to the community as part of Phil Diane's research, it looked at uh, minor extractable value. So the ability that miners had on Ethereum to extract value from inserting, reordering, reordering or censoring transactions. Um, and looking specifically at sort of arbitrage um, uh, and, um, and PGA wars on, on Ethereum. Um, and the goal was to sort of identify what are the ways in which this value that you know, miners have the ability to extract is actually being extracted in practice, uh, which was through the use of, uh, of you know, gas wars uh, and, and gas war bots. Um, and try to model what are sort of the negative externalities and the end game of of, uh, of this value extraction. Um, it quickly built up to be sort of a massive problem um, or a massive opportunity, depending on who you are in the system. Um, you know, over the last year, over a billion dollars of, of MEV has been extracted just atomically on Ethereum alone. Um, and the MEV ecosystem has sort of grown to be much, much bigger than this. Um, you know, MEV proposes a bunch of different threats to uh, to these kinds of decentralized systems. Um, the main one being a centralization risk, um, and so uh, uh, that's why we uh, sort of form Flashbots as an organization to try to, um, to understand the problem better, do a lot of research, and then build solutions that, that help mitigate them. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so great to have you guys on. Um, also, and uh, I wanted to like dive a little bit into that, right? So you're, there is this concept that you introduced, Stefan, or like Flashbots introduced, which is this MEV supply chain. Maybe uh, can you talk a little bit about the MEV supply chain and where exactly the centralization risks lie that you just kind of briefly touched upon? Yeah, so the MEV supply chain is a simplification, um, I suppose, of how the ecosystem is emerging around MEV, um, how the industry is emerging and the different roles that actors are playing. Um, so the way that it works is we look at um, starting from a user, right, that has a certain set of preferences. They want to execute some kind of action on top of um, on top of a chain. They want to execute some sort of, of state transition, um, but they need help to do so. So really what they have is a set of preferences. Then what they do is they um, they interact with uh, an application, right? Whether the application is is a DAP like Uniswap or a wallet like MetaMask, they inter they interact with some kind of interface that helps them encode their preferences into a transaction. It's sort of then the job of that application, right, to figure out how to take this transaction and actually get it executed and uh, uh, on chain. Historically, it's been pretty simple. Right? They send that transaction to the transaction pool, it gets picked up by a miner, and it gets included. Um, what we've sort of noticed is with these MEV opportunities, bot operators picking up transactions from the transaction pool and sort of inserting themselves in the middle of the supply chain, adding additional transactions uh, around it right, to form sort of a bundle of transactions, and then submitting that to, uh, to the miners for, um, for inclusion. So if you're keeping up right now, we have 
already four different actors on the supply chain. The user, the application, the searchers, and the miners. Um, finally, you know, with the, uh, the approach of, of proof of stake, we introduce um, this additional role, which, which we refer to as the builder. Um, and that is really just separating out the, the role that the miner has into two. Um, so the role of, um, of taking a bunch of these bundles from searchers and transactions from users and producing a block with it, the block builder role. Um, and then the role of taking, um, the, you know, the, the most valuable block and proposing it to the network. Um, this, is the, this is the validator role. So that's the, that's the ensemble of, uh, of the supply chain. Now, now your question here was, you know, where does centralization emerge in all of this? Um, the risk of MEV is initially that um, bot operators who um, were very good at extracting these kinds of opportunities would partner with, uh, with miners to get some exclusive access to, to block space, right? Exclusive access to, to hash rate um, and be able to, um, to, to extract uh, the MEV and get transactions included um, using sort of one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one deals as opposed to an open market for, uh, for that block space. Um, what would happen in that case is these miners or these integrated miner MEV searchers would get super linear rewards relative to their hash rate. So they would receive more rewards than another miner would for the same amount of hash rate. This translates, of course, in the proof of stake world by receiving more reward per stake than another, um, another staker. Over time, this allows them to compound the reward, you know, take a, a larger share of, uh, of the network. Um, so that's the biggest source and the biggest worry with regards to centralization in the supply chain is like seeing some validator who's able to accrue uh, an outsized share of the network um, using uh, MEV extraction techniques. Um, this is not to say that this is the only place where centralization emerges. Maybe we can get into that. I think every single step in the supply chain also has a, a risk of centralization. So Vasily, like, okay, you, you just gave a little bit of background about LIDO, but maybe before we go kind of into the meat of MEV, uh, I don't know if this is premature, but like, how, how do you think about uh, the significance of MEV for LIDO? So you can think of LIDO as a, uh, like aggregate protocol for staking. People like trust either to LIDO to be delegated on multiple uh, node operators. We have, uh, I think, 30 right now. Um, so they, they, they want us to, uh, to distribute this uh, either to stake on multiple operators. These operators run the nodes. There's like the, these are the validators that actually run the nodes, make the blocks, uh, make attestations and stuff. Um, and Lido acts as a, um, as a like as an agent of uh, of a staker to make a good distribution, the one that uh, gives a good APR, that one that gives uh, low risks, that one that uh, uh, prevents the centralization staking layer. So the question for Lido is, what is the best outcome for our stakers? Like, how do we do the best um, uh, outcome for our stakers here? Because 
we are the agent of stakers and the, as a protocol and uh the the, the protocol that uh, uh, should be aligned with stakers interest if we want to have any success at all uh, it's pretty clear that what people want for like just taking is we, if we remove MEV from from the caution is a good uh, distribution of stake so that stake is not centralized with one entity or something and low risks and decent APR. With the MEV that gets uh, and, and that's not controversial. Like there is nothing to uh, there. There is very little uh, place to to go for something else. Like every liquid staking protocol is designed exactly the same way. They optimize for best best uh, operator set, uh, low risk and good APR. Uh, they take different places on like Pareto frontier for this, uh, but uh, the 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 direction is the same. With MEV, it's not so simple because we need to balance uh, now APR not being harmful to the network and to the price of token and like centralization risk, which are much less clear. Like what is the best course of action here is much less clear. I'm uh, on the same page personally with uh, uh, Stefan here on how the, this stuff will play out. There is a significant risk of centralization for making blocks. And that's why I think uh, that we as Lido should refrain from ever, ever making blocks ever. Like Lido doesn't make blocks. Um, otherwise, Lido is a risk. Because if we start uh, actually participating in like MV extraction actively, like by calling the shots of how it should be done, uh, preventing people from participating in it, like taking some exclusivity here, uh, it's very slippery slope uh, on uh, prioritizing API extraction over like money extraction over long-term health of the network, and that's not good for stakers. They want network to be valuable, and to be valuable, it should be decentralized. Uh, because like we that that's the value of Ethereum. Like that's why Ethereum is is great and used and like because it's uh, has a track record of being uh, trustless and neutral and decentralized. So Lido has to keep that. Cool. Uh, actually, that's uh, it was kind of a question we had for later on, but like I think let's just get to that right now because that we were also. Yeah, like so, so for example, the, the Lido stance then would be that node operators uh, can choose how to handle MEV themselves or, or, or do you see that like Lido would basically have a policy that, you know, all of the entities operating nodes, they have to use something like Flashbots? So, yeah. Um, so we are in process of making this policy at this moment. Uh, everyone can participate in it. It's a public on forum, basically. Uh, I really love people to wait in here because I think it's very important. Right now, there hasn't been a lot of uh, feedback from uh, like anyone from uh, that is not like our node operator of Flashbot, basically. Uh, from Flashbots, basically, and I like I, I would appreciate some some more feedback from larger community here. 
Uh, what we are thinking right now is that Lido has to participate in MEV because like it's the right thing to do. If if we don't, uh, the we we have two negative consequences. One is that like we are not competitive versus uh, staking stake option that participate in MEV, and the other is that like leaving MEV on the table is not actually good for for the ecosystem. Uh, it it will lead to like again to centralization. We like that's the same uh, thing that uh, flashbots also had been uh, saying for all this time. Like that's healthy way to do as a validator as long as you don't do actually uh, harmful things like block reorganizations, etc. So that's one thing. The other thing is. Uh, uh, Lido doesn't make blocks. Like Lido dispute stakes to operators who make blocks, and uh, uh, we want to keep it this way. Like we want to uh, re- uh, don't to not have a lot of influence here. Like we want the blocks be made by uh, by external entities that are not Lido or validators that like not operators that run with Lido, uh, because otherwise we introduce a significant centralization risk here, and. Uh, uh, we want to select the best uh, technical solution that allows us to do that uh, uh, in a way that like is uh, is aligned with what we think is uh, the best way uh, for MEV extraction at this moment. And there is uh, like one option right now uh, that is like. I'd say like maybe 0.8 options right now because uh, MEV boost is. Uh, is not battle test yet, of course, because there hasn't been no merge yet. And it fully works with us. Like MEV boost is uh, propose a block separa- uh, pro- propose a build separation on the chip, basically, and it prepares us for the future that will be uh, uh, in Ethereum probably in like in five years or so. And it allows Lido not to make blocks but but participate in MEV, and it democratizes access to MEV. So like it it's fully. Vo- working uh, with what we think should, should be our policy. It's not finalized, though. That's what we are thinking. That's what we are putting on the uh, on the governance forum. If you think we are wrong, uh, please make sure uh, we know it. Thanks. So I guess a lot, on, lot to unpack here. Uh, maybe we can go back a little bit into, you know, how MEV boosts actually work. So we, Stefan, you touched upon it a little bit that it separates the block building from the validation part. And, and as far as I understand from Vasily, basically the validation layer is um, kind of Lido's part where the stake is distributed. And then the block building part is what Flashbots or MEV Boost delivers. Now, can you talk a little bit about, uh, again, how, how does this work? And maybe how does Flashbots actually decentralize the, the block building? Or like, are there multiple people that can run this block builder and um yeah uh, how does it solve this this issue okay cool let's get into it um so i think the way vasily framed mev boost is is a great way to think about it it's it's pbs light so pbs is or, or you know we could refer to it as enshrined pbs is uh, one of the the roadmap items for ethereum 
of creating the separation between the entity that's in charge of taking transactions and inserting them into blocks, which is sort of a highly specialized activity of MEV searching, of uh, scalable simulation, of uh, merging algorithms, um, and optimizing the value of a block, separating that from the role of the validator, which we want to be a role that's as simple uh, as possible of proposing a block to the chain, validating that the block that someone else proposed is valid and sort of, you know, contributing votes to, to, uh, to, to keeping the chain moving forward. Um, so PBS aims to separate these two to avoid this, this, uh, this problem of, of centralization at, at the validator level. However, there's, uh, there's some challenges to getting uh, enshrined PBS in, in the protocol. Um, it's still at the research phase. So there's some designs for how to deal with, uh, with the separation using sort of this commit reveal system over multiple blocks, um, uh, as well as, uh, as doing some modification to the, the fork choice rule. Um, but those have not been sort of implemented or, or, um, or, or fully researched yet. So it's on the roadmap, not ready yet. The question is, well, there will be MEV at the merge, right? Uh, there will be MEV uh, on proof of stake Ethereum. So what is the MEV solution that we want to, to use at that point? Do we want to continue using the same solution as we have today on Ethereum? Or is there a way to go one step beyond um, and implement something that's closer to uh, to uh, to full enshrined PBS. Um, MEV Boost is the closest thing we could design to enshrined PBS without doing any consensus modifications. Um, so it attempts at reusing all of the uh, design objectives of, um, of enshrined PBS uh, while uh, uh, having this sort of setup outside of, of consensus um, uh, to, to achieve them. Um, you know, practically, what 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 is MEV Boost? It's it's a sidecar. It's a it's a piece of software that any uh, any node operator can uh, run as part of their client. So uh, right now, right node operators, the full stack is sort of three different um, uh, pieces of software. There's the validator client, the beacon client, and the execution client. Um, now, uh, what MEV Boost is it's a plugin for the uh, the Beacon node, uh, for the Beacon client that um, that allows it to query for for outsource execution. Um, MEV Boost connects to uh, a network of uh, of block builders to uh, to request uh, uh, blocks from them, um, and then it selects uh, whichever is the one that um, that produces the the highest value for uh, for the, the the staker. And just uh, asking on this, so you said like, okay, it connects to a network of block builders. So then like, how, how is that some sort of gossip network or, or like, how does that network function? So to start, um, the way that it works is the node operator defines a set of relays that uh, it accepts blocks from. So what a relay is, it's a sort of a trusted counterparty that a node operator says, I, uh, I trust you to aggregate blocks from a bunch of different block builders to measure the value of it uh, and verify that this block is accurate, um, pays me, 
um, and then custody this block until it is ready to be revealed to the network. Um, so the node operator connects to these relayers, and then these relayers aggregate blocks from, uh, from several different uh, block builders. In the future, the goal is to transition that to being um, using a, a gossip protocol. So it is possible, and there's sort of specs for this. Um, it's not currently doing this because using uh, the gossip protocol requires additional changes to the gossip network of, uh, of the clients. Um, and the goal for the initial launch is to keep things as, um, as simple as possible. Um, so, you know, one, one thing that's important to note here, right, Vasily said, you know, MEV boost is like 0 0.8 of a, of a, of a solution. Um, the reason for that is, you know, MEV boost is being developed side by side with, uh, uh Ethereum and, and proof of stake Ethereum. Um, and so what will be launched at, uh, at the merge is only sort of step one of the MEV boost uh, 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 roadmap. Uh, and it will continue to sort of iterate and, and ship new features um, that bring it closer and closer to, uh, to full PBS. Um, and so um, this gossiping is, is one of those features. So yeah, maybe like a interesting question now, the way you put it is that essentially like Flashbots is this intermediate solution until full PBS is there, which is like a protocol feature. But does that mean like once PBS is there, Flashbots becomes kind of irrelevant? Does it replace this? And, and or like what's the vision for Flashbots at that point? Um, are there like other things in the works that Flashbots would work on or problems that you see that aren't fully addressed by full PBS maybe? There are. Um, so, so we see the relationship between block builders and validators as only being one piece of the, of the MEV puzzle, right? It's only a subset of the MEV problem. Um, just, and you know, well, the way to think about it is the supply chain, this is only one of the relationships in the MEV supply chain that we, that we discussed earlier. Um, so once this relationship is sort of embedded into the protocol, um, then that's great. Right? Like Flashbots doesn't need to do or build anything there anymore. We'll continue to provide research, uh, but there's no, um, there's no you know, product to operate. Specifically, right, what Enshrine PBS removes from MEV Boost is the concept of these relayers. Um, so you know, there would be no longer a need for, for Flashbots to operate a relay once, uh, once Enshrine PBS is there. However, um, the relationships that aren't figured out yet is the relationship between applications and searchers and between searchers and builders. Um, so, um, you know, we've, we've posited uh, uh, two different futures for MEV, right? The dystopic future and the utopic future. The dystopic one is, is one that we call centralized block building, right? It's, it's a future where there's a very limited few uh, actors out there that are able to uh, build the most profitable blocks across all different blockchains. And they become sort of the gatekeepers of, of blockchains because they uh, all the transactions sort of go through them if they wish to be uh, included in the chain. Um, and then the more utopic future is, is one of decentralized block building. So there's uh, block building is much more commoditized and there's a wider set of actors that are able to do it. Um, this grants you uh, better censorship uh, resistance, for example. Um, and this is 
you know, this distinction between centralized block building and decentralized block building is not one that uh, that PBS solves. Um, so, you know, the focus for for Flashbots once once PBS is is fully enshrined is how do we figure out how to build uh, decentralized block building um, for for Ethereum and but for other other chains as well. So you mentioned this relayer, right? So basically. I guess the issue is, right, that you said, okay, uh, the the relayer custodies the block uh, until it's revealed later, because I guess if you give the block directly to the miner, then, you know, they could basically, is the reason they could just like uh, make the same transactions themselves and sort of not use the, the work from the searchers. And so... Now, of course, but then at the same time, that relayer, of course, could do something similar, right? And that, oh, they know the content of the block, and now they're trying to basically sort of like, you know, front run what's there. Uh, and, and then is the idea that Flashbot runs this relayer, or like how, can you talk a little bit more about sort of the, the trust assumptions that like exist right now and, and the sort of risks that come with that? Yeah. For sure. Um, so, so the idea behind PBS is that a block builder is able to construct a block, uh, create a proof that says this block is worth X dollars. So if, or X ETH, right? And if I submit that over to a validator and the validator signs the block header and includes it in the chain, they are guaranteed to receive that, uh, that X amount of ETH regardless of what the block does. Even if the block is not a valid block, they still receive this, uh, this value. That's, that's the design behind uh, Entrine PBS. Um, what uh, MevBoost does is, because we don't have the ability to make those unconditional payments um, at, the, uh, at the consensus level yet, it uses this relay to accept the block, score it, uh, determine how much value it's it's paying to the to the validator. Withhold the block body. Only submit the header with a promise that says, "Hey, you know this block includes X amount of ETH. If you sign it, uh, then it will pay you." Um, and then the the validator signs it. The block is then revealed to the network, and and the payment goes through. So this this relay replaces um, replaces these sort of consensus level guarantees with trust guarantees. The block builder trusts the relay that the relay is not going to leak the information about the block construction and is going to accurately score and prioritize their blocks. Um, And then on the other side, the validator trusts the relay that the relay is not lying about the, uh, the value of the block that it's producing. It's not lying about the fact that the block is valid. Um, and is going to reveal the block to the network when when it comes to time. The really important part about this is because this uh, relay role is trusted, any misbehavior from the relay can sort of be identified by the network, right? So other relays in the network or any of the validators in the network can notice if a relay starts misbehaving and disconnect from that relay. Um, so it's not just that, you know, they're a fully trusted third party that's like unauditable. No, like the behavior of the relay becomes, uh, auditable and it's easy to say, okay, this relay is not behaving anymore. We'll no longer be accepting blocks from, uh, from this relay. Uh, and this is the, the key, 
the key property that makes this the system work is that while the relay is trusted on a single block uh, basis over multiple different blocks, any sort of misbehavior is attributable, and therefore you can uh, you can uh, uh, recover the system to 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 default operation mode. You had a question about will will Flashbox operate a relay? So yes, uh, Flashbox will operate both a, a block builder and um, and a relay. Um, this is mostly for bootstrapping reasons, for bootstrapping the network. Uh, ultimately, what we see is there being uh, many, many different types of, of block builders emerging um, and competing on, uh, on producing the most valuable block. Likewise, we see emerging uh, many different relays uh, competing on providing you know, the lowest latency, highest availability services for, uh, for block builders and, and node operators. So you, you mentioned, right, that the misbehavior of the relay can be kind of detected by the rest of the network. Is this also true for, I guess, node operators or the other parties? And, and what would happen to them if, let's say, node operator starts to not follow the convention or, like, build a block himself? Will he be, like, excluded from the relay or how, how would that work in practice? So really, there, this is designed in such a way that there isn't really a way for, um, for node operators to misbehave. Um, the, the reason why you need this is because you want to be able to support solo stakers, right? To be able to support 100% of, of the network, you need to be able to, to support node operators that are completely untrusted. Um, and so there isn't really a way for, for node operators to abuse and, and grief the system. Um, what you can, uh, uh, what, what the, where the misbehavior sort of occurs uh, or has a potential to occur is, is on the relay. Um, so there's three specific ways in which a, a relay can misbehave with regards to their relationship with the node operators. They can lie about the payment that, um, that they are making um, uh, for the inclusion of this block. They can produce a block that's just invalid. Right? It has a transaction in there that violates some consensus rules, and therefore the block just gets thrown out. Um, or um, it can withhold the block. So it can just not reveal the block to the network when, uh, when it has to. Um, so each of these different misbehaviors have specific mitigations that mean that, uh, that node operators can, can observe and identify uh, when, when these take place, um, and then sort of terminate the relationship with that, with that relay. Maybe a question to Vasily kind of on, on this. Now, you kind of mentioned that the payment uh, is received once a block is revealed to the node operators. Now, if there were a LIDO policy, kind of how would that go to the, would that kind of accrue to the STE holders somehow? Uh, can you kind of explain your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, we we've got uh, already an upgrade out. Like Lido is ready for uh, for the merge and like after merge things. Um, we expect operators to set up the payment address as Lido address. Uh, the other accrued on this address uh, will be staked, like in proportionally accrued to staked other holders. So it's a bit of a bump on APR. For other staked other holders. So proportionally, you mean like the same kind of uh, commission structure that uh, applies to the main if staking rewards will also apply to the MEV. 
yeah same 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 fee structure so like uh out of uh, 100% of MEV rewards like 90% goes to stakers and uh, 5% to not operators and 5% to lido uh it has one uh, fun um side effect of automatically smoothing the MEV rewards so uh in lido operators uh refuse a uh, uh, get the average uh, MEV rewards uh, per day, basically, and uh, um, uh, in proportion to how many nodes they're on. So there is no outsized winners and like and losers in the uh, on MEV extraction lidar. It's like all smoothed out. Um, yeah, thanks. That's helpful. Maybe we can talk a little bit about sort of the the markets here, right? Because you mentioned a bunch of different parties, right? So we basically have, you know, the person making the transaction. Then there is like sort of the application, let's say a wallet or something similar. Then there is the relayer, the block builder, I guess. And then the the validator. Uh, I guess in Lido's case, there's even, you know, Lido DAO as like an additional party that like, uh, that's in there. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what are, what are the sort of markets that exist and where do you see the, the economic value that derives from, and value and cost, right? That derives from MEV, where do you see that accrue? And I guess Flashbots is another party that's uh, in there, right? Yeah, so, so we sort of see ourselves as, as the game designers here, right? Like our goal is to design a game that is um, incentive aligned with uh, the, you know, the interests of all the, the stakeholders in the system and also aligned with the objective of the, of the chain that, that we're designing a game for. Um, and what we sort of see as being a healthy game with regards to the supply chain is one in which the value accrues to um, to the edges. So it accrues to the user who's um, who's trying to to interact with the chain, um, and to the uh, the stakers at the other end who are ultimately providing the the capital and the security for um, for the chain. Um, so what a what a healthy supply chain looks like is a lot of competition at each intermediary step between the users and the staker such that um, you know each role takes a minimum uh, minimum fee a minimal uh, rent extraction uh, the you know the market should be the one that that sets exactly how um, how that um, that how big that value is but in a competitive market it should trend towards um, towards zero right or like as close as as possible to it um, so really, that's 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 how we see the 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 utopic game evolving. Um, now, economic incentives are such that any actor in the system want to accrue outsized rent for themselves. They want to monopolize and reduce the competition for their role uh, to be able to increase the percentage of the economic benefit that they can capture themselves, um, and uh, and that is the the key metric to to look out for. How much of the value is being accrued to uh, to the edges, to users and stakers, versus to um, to intermediaries who are uh, who are collecting rent? 
do you have any like indication or like how much that currently is or is there any kind of looking into that from on the MEV side and on proof of work or do you think it will improve with proof of stake and an MEV boost versus proof of work? It's like very difficult to quantify. Um, so there's, um, there's a few goals with, uh, with, with flashbots. Um, so first is to democratize access to MEV prevent it from becoming sort of these exclusive games. This also means like maximize competition. The second one is provide transparency. So make sure that uh, in all these markets, the price discovery mechanism is transparent. And this allows everyone to be well educated about what happens uh, in the system. It's not a black box. It's like a very transparent box. Um, and then the third one is redistributing the benefits. So, so that is the equivalent of saying, okay, the value gets pushed to, to the edges, to, to the users and to, um, to the to the stakers um now i think where we are at in the the sophistication of this system is still very early i'd say right now the majority of the value is sort of accruing to bot operators and and miners um without flashbots it would have been a lot more towards bot operators you know the way that the flashbot system works today uh with the auction the majority of the value gets sent to um to the miners i do think there is still a missing um, a lot of missing innovation uh, with regards to MEV and specifically with regards to application design, wallet design, to help expose less MEV to the network. So help users express their preferences in a way that doesn't expose as much value to uh, to bot operators and stakers. This is sort of the the frontier of of MEV that um, that hasn't yet been uh, been invaded on or, or explored by um, by our, our industry. One thing I'm, I'm curious about, uh, so let, let's say I'm, I'm somebody who's, uh, I, I want to make a trade on Uniswap and I, you know, basically put this in and, 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 you know, I put some slippage tolerance in and of course the, the kind of, uh, the, this, you know, typical, um, MEV use case that people talk about a lot is this sandwiching idea, right? Where like, okay, somebody then goes and like basically moves the price like against me to the worst possible price that I still accept. And then my trade goes through and then they move it back. And basically I, I mean, my trade got through, right? I was okay with that, but I also got sort of like, you know, the worst possible price that I was okay with. And of course, what Flashbot's now done, right, is that it's kind of creating this market around this, okay, who can do this thing and move some of the profits to the miners. I mean, another, another, another way one could think about this potentially is I, as a user, you know, I want to put this trade in, you know, with some slippage tolerance and... Uh, I'm creating sort of like an opportunity to be sandwiched. So wouldn't it be nice if I can auction it off and then somebody can basically buy from me sort of the, the ability or right to sandwich this and then I get paid for that. And then again, that should actually kind of go to the place where, you know, I get most of the sandwich opportunity back and I don't have to worry too much about like, you know, what slippage to put in and what parameters. And because right now you maybe want to put a narrow slippage so that like 
I don't get sandwiched so much, but then maybe my transaction fails and pay too much gas. So I'm curious, is, is do you see in the future, is, is that kind of a scenario too, where like maybe users or I don't know if that would be the applications to users use, kind of create some auction to like sell the, the MEV opportunity that's intrinsic in transactions? Um, yes, this is like frontier, right? MEV um, uh, system design is the question is how do we deal with with order flow? So maybe I'll I'll try to frame frame the problem in, in a way that ties back into um, the discussion that we've had so far. Um, so one of the one of the areas of research that that I mentioned we're we're looking at is block builder centralization, right? Um, and what are the different different sources of this this centralization? The biggest one that that we see is order flow. So as a block builder, I'm sort of incentivized to try to aggregate transactions uh, and, and order flow from sources that are exclusive to me. If I'm able to you know, get all of Uniswap transactions to be sent exclusively to my block builder, um, it's pretty much guaranteed that my block builder is going to be the most valuable, right? Or is going to be able to produce the most valuable blocks. And therefore, there's, there'll be very limited competition uh, for, uh, for, for this block building. Um, so order flow and access to exclusive order flow becomes sort of a, a, a very difficult uh, or a very prominent uh, centralization risk when when it comes to um, to block building, and is why it's 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 a problem that's that's super important to to solve. So what does solving the order flow problem look like? Um, I think it has the same properties that um, that I've discussed previously. Right, you want some kind of marketplace that is democratic that is able for anyone to start accessing this order flow if they want to. You want it to have uh, transparent uh, price discovery, um, and then you want it to uh, redistribute the value to, um, to the end users. There isn't yet a generic design for an order flow marketplace that I've seen um, that sort of fulfills all uh, three of, uh, of these requirements. Um, a lot of the designs that have been explored so far are sort of focused on um, providing some permissioned access uh, to order flow and sort of compromise on uh, on on the dem democratic side of it um, uh, or um, or some other uh, aspects of it. The other thing that, that I want to mention is um, there is sort of some some pretty fundamental challenges when it comes to um, to uh, to thinking of uh, MEV as a fixed value. So really the best mitigation for MEV is not to sell the MEV to someone who can extract it. It's to create applications that don't expose as much MEV. That's always going to be the best way to, um, to protect a user and make sure that the user gets the most amount of value back. And I think uh, applications that explore this are ones that realize actually slippage um, is equivalent to increasing the gas price on a transaction, right? So as a user, if I set sort of a gas price of zero when I send my transaction and set a very high slippage, um, it's equivalent to setting a slippage of zero and setting a really high gas price. The reason why is because it allows for, um, uh, for basically prioritizing the execution or incentivizing bot operators to move the market in such a way that my transaction ends up getting, um, getting included. Um, so, you know, the solutions out there that are looking at this, I think, are, are doing so in an interesting way. They're playing with the fact that these two different uh, values actually mean the same thing. 
to try to uh, come up with an expression of, of user preferences that gives them execution uh, within sort of a reasonable amount of time and a reasonable price. Um, now, you know, we've, we've been talking about, about swapping as a use case here, but this exact same sort of uh, 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 preference expression question exists with a lot of different, uh, a lot of different applications. Cool. I, I guess one thing that seems so, somewhat uh, related to this topic, and I'm curious about. So, so a product that you guys also announced uh, some while ago was uh, Flashbot Protect, where I think a user can send a transaction sort of to this, you know, private mempool. It doesn't go in a normal mempool that's sort of managed by Flashbots, and then uh, you know can kind of kind of like prevent being front run. Uh, is is this something that's going to exist in you know after the merge as well? And like, w- what do you see as the role of this in the future? Yeah, it'll it'll exist after the merge as well. Um, so what Flatbox Protect does, as you mentioned, it allows you to route transactions directly to uh, to data miner, um, right? Um, in the proof of stake world, what it does it, it allows you to route the transactions directly to a block builder. Um, without sort of going through the public uh, transaction pool. Now, there's there's some trade-offs involved in this, right? The the public transaction pool. The the beauty of it is it provides um, provides some good censorship resistance guarantees because it is distributed to as many different parties as possible uh, and and in the public. Uh, so the transaction is replicated across the entire Ethereum network. Uh, when you route uh, these transactions through a, a system like uh, Flashbots Protect, you are hiding it from uh, from bot operators that can, for example, sandwich it. But um, you are also sort of only routing it to uh, to a, a single actor uh, for them to um, to include um, on the chain. Um, so Flashbots Protect as as a product is sort of trying to target this relationship between applications and uh, searchers or, or block builders. Um, and, you know, the future roadmap for that is to increase the, the decentralization of it, figure out how to route these transactions to uh, to more than just a single block builder and, and a single searcher and allow for sort of users to specify preferences over how uh, their transactions can be used. All right. We wanted to, like, also talk a little bit about going beyond ethereum in a way so right like the roadmap of ethereum um contains a lot this this strategy of having like l2s or like rollups to scale and of course by having that right like some of the DeFi activity or i guess in general activity will move um from the l1 to the l2s um and uh, with that the mev opportunities too and will kind of spread out around us um how is Flashbots kind of thinking about this space? Is there, are you working on solutions to kind of address like, let's say cross-chain MEV uh, or, you know, how, what is the impact of this in general uh, on the, in the MEV space? So cross-chain MEV, I think we haven't seen really people exploring this, this uh, a lot. Uh, except in the most uh, like naive and simple way by arbitraging the uh, the dex prices between chains, and even that had been sporadic and slow. 
I'm uh, for, apart from being like uh, in Lido, I'm also uh, working P2P validator. We run uh, some bridges in validator, and we see it like firsthand. Um, cross chain maybe is slow and efficient right these days. I think there is a real, uh, real chance that with the like multi-chain future and a lot of economic activities between uh, between chains uh, and like not like if we we should count also exchanges um, in, in in this equation like it's not a chain but it's also a place where economic activity on blockchain happens the analog to hft traders uh, will emerge that will have like multiple uh, extremities on different blockchains one on like on Ethereum, one on Solana, one on Binance, one on Coinbase or whatever. And uh, uh, they exploit the, the different economic state and different uh, rates, uh, rate of updates and like the basically uh, border-related uh, border MEV. And uh, the best of them will have outsized returns compared to the worst. Uh, just like it is with HFT. And uh, given that a lot of this economic space are centralized, like exchanges, uh, a lot of this success will depend on good relationship with them, uh, with the exchanges and like being able to collocate, being able to uh, get the best deal flow, like transaction flow. Uh, and uh, that will lead to like a few hyper competent and uh, well positioned firms to have uh, to have an outsized advantage um, i'm not quite sure what what to do with it right now it's not the case there is not like that much money in it and uh, there is not that much uh, like it's it's not super active right now how do you how would you know even right because if if you think of like arbitrage where like, okay, you know, I'm selling something on Uniswap and then I'm making some kind of trade on, I don't know, FTX or Binance. Like we wouldn't even, you wouldn't even be able to see if that's happening right now or not, no. I, I like, it's, it's, it's not that hard to, uh, to, to read on chain, basically. Like if you, if we, if we take a look at Ethereum, like that's, uh, pretty visible. The, the the arbitrage trading bots are pretty visible. They they do like if you take accounts that have three hundred thousand transactions, that's basically them. That's arbitrage trading bots. Like you you can see how they trade. They, you you can like you can't really see, but you can like more or less estimate how much they make, uh, how competitive they are, etc. etc. It's like the blockchain is too transparent. Uh, you can't really uh, find out like cross uh, cross exchange arbitrage uh, how it works, but um, so like what we what like what we see uh, from like very competent firm engaged in this vision of future is that a lot of um, professional market makers uh, like not not some of the professional market makers act actively like explore this by running arbitrage bots by building cross-chain solutions like wormhole for example um, by building uh, like price feeds etc uh, etc et uh, by getting ties with uh, wallets to get uh, 
or transaction flow that's a conjecture but i think it's happening um haven't seen this public yet but like i'm pretty sure that it's going to happen so there is uh, an unexplored space which people are preparing different like different ways and uh, it's not that big right now so we don't like i i at least i can't draw the line from now to like the future that will be there it's not fully understood by me all right i agree with almost everything i agree with the analysis i disagree that it's not big already uh, i do think it's already very big in fact i think it's probably one of the biggest sources of mev today is arbitrage between centralized exchange and uh, decentralized exchange um, you know, over, I think, 60% of the volume on Uniswap comes from these arbitrage bots that are just taking the price that's set on Binance, Coinbase, wherever else, and then reflecting that into the price of, of, uh, of the AMMs. Um, and so a lot, a lot of the trading activity uh, on a percentage-wise on DeFi comes from this sort of cross-domain uh, uh, MEV. Um, I think what what is small, right? Maybe, and this is this is what Vasility was referring to, is specifically between two different blockchains. Um, so, because there is like limited amount of price setting between uh, uh, on blockchains themselves, there's limited amount of of sort of user interactions uh, that are actually doing uh, uh, the volume on these chains. The arbitrage opportunity doesn't sit necessarily between two different blockchains it sits always between like a blockchain and um and uh, a centralized exchange um i maybe i can i can expand on on the problem of um of cross-domain mev um so it is uh probably the largest uh, uh unsolved um mev problem alongside with the the order flow um issue um, we've sort of done some some research, and Alex Obadia on our, on our team has has published this paper on um, on cross domain MEV that attempts to formalize some of the uh, the properties of uh, of this and, and the consequences that that it has for um, for blockchains. Um, basically, the um, the the takeaway from the research is the existence of cross domain MEV means that there is a centralization pressure that spreads from. Um, a centralized system uh, that has a lot of economic activity to a more decentralized system that has uh, a bit less economic activity. That's because anyone who has an advantage on the centralized system will have sort of outsized ability to uh, to capture opportunities and can then execute that power to get more uh, influence on, on on a decentralized uh, system. Let's take like an example um, here. So we have uh, a Binance or FTX that uses sort of fee tiers, right, for um, for uh, for giving rebates to to market makers and arbitragers. So a large market maker um, on FTX or Binance that's able to approach them and get some special deal that says I'm going to pay a lot less fees to the exchange because I bring a lot of volume sort of has an entrenched advantage uh, in this centralized domain. That means that they are able to outcompete anyone else that's doing this arbitrage between centralized exchange and decentralized exchange. Um, this means that they are going to be able to successfully uh, capture the arbitrage opportunities when it comes to executing on uh, on Ethereum or, or or the other chains. They can then use this ability to like reliably uh, bid more and win the opportunities to sort of start producing blocks, 
uh, to start integrating up and down the sort of supply chain on on these uh, these distributed, uh, more decentralized systems. Um, so actually, right, the the existence of cross domain MEV and the fact that um, that exchanges offer fee tiers that are uh, that are very exclusive and not transparent sort of leads to more centralization in the MEV supply chain on uh, uh, on Ethereum and and other chains themselves. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I did not sufficiently, I think, kind of uh, make that link before. But yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense. Maybe, Stefan, uh, the, the, the L2 thing. So yeah, we talked about this, now the cross-chain thing, and especially as it relates to uh, centralized exchanges, which I think is a great point. But what about L2s, the roll-ups? What is the impact they have? So um, layer two is rollups, um, you know, and the cross-domain MEV framing are different domains. Um, so, you know, there are different execution environments that carry state and, and have sort of uh, the, the problem to solve of how do I order transactions internally? Um, and then how does, you know, the finalization of these transactions relate to the finalization on, um, on, other, um, on other domains? Um, you know, one way to frame what is the solution to cross-domain MEV, um, the, the solution is how do you minimize the, um, the coordination cost between validators on different domains to provide finalization uh, without it being the same uh, logical entity, right? So um, let's say that you have um, a, a centralized sequencer on a layer two, and the sequencer decides to uh, begin doing uh, MEV extraction, right? They capture 100% of, of the MEV because they control 100% of the block space. Um, what they can then start offering is saying, okay, I am going to start buying uh, validators on Ethereum perhaps, right? And start controlling more of the uh, block space on Ethereum and then offer some neat services that says, hey, I am able to offer atomic execution across Ethereum and this layer two because I control 100% of this block, the blocks on this layer two and I control some of the blocks on Ethereum. Whenever I have a block that matches between the two, I'll say here's an atomic execution between the two. What you want to solve in the cross-domain setting is say you can offer this with 100% of the validators on Ethereum and any of the layer twos in a way that these entities don't need to be the um, the same entity. They can be distinct entities that just coordinate with minimum cost uh, at being able to, to provide this um, this service. Um, so this is sort of on a uh, greenfield sort of research still, um, and, and Flashbots is, is looking at it and prototyping some things, but um, there isn't uh, sort of an active solution that, um, that provides this kind of service yet. And... I guess, yeah, maybe what's interesting, right, is that obviously Lido is um, an entity that is also on the different chains. So even if we think about, yeah, okay, of course, the validators themselves or node operators are operating nodes on the different chains, but Lido as a like aggregator is also on the different chains. Could, is Lido playing a role in this system or could Lido kind of take part in in allowing to do that to happen? Is that um, something you you are exploring? Uh, so right now we we don't do anything about that. Uh, our um, our light on different uh, blockchains is self-contained mostly. 
uh, it shares the uh, like the overall brand and uh, but no uh, and some technical and expertise and stuff like that but there is no like overarching LIDO that does things cross-chain um, between each other I think uh, uh, LIDO being big on like multiple blockchains is pretty good setup to make the uh, cross-chain MV uh, less centralized because like without domain being explicitly stake distribution and liquid staking and not MV extraction we can and we should and that's like mostly follows through from all policies uh, that are not finished yet but that's what we are uh, the that policy drafts basically uh, it follows through that we would want to have a decentralized market for cross-chain MV, just like much the same way we, we want this market to exist for like in, in blockchain as well. Being focused on one thing will allow us to uh, make the like MEV stuff less, less contained in like one big operator or something. And I guess when it comes to flashboards, I mean, right now, so far you've been fully focused, or you, you've, you know, just put out some products for Ethereum, seem to be very Ethereum focused, but do you also think of building, you know, flash, you know, basically solutions for other blockchains? Yes. Uh, thanks for, thanks for asking. So, um, the way that we've been thinking is first we have finite attention and resources. So we can't build solutions for every chain. Um, and so we have to pick sort of one place that we want to, to experiment and, and, and build these things. Um, we pick Ethereum because it's the most active smart contract uh, blockchain. Um, and it's also the most decentralized. And so if there's solutions to be built that will help decentralization, it's the right place to, um, to test them out. And our hope is that these abstractions can then be ported over to these other chains. Um, but porting over these abstractions is not um, is not an easy job. Um, there's a lot of intricacies um, and design details that go with each different chain um, that mean that the solution will have to look um, will have to look somewhat different. Um, so our approach to to you know cross domain is um, to to work with uh, and collaborate with partners that are more integrated into these other ecosystems. Um, that share the same um, the same beliefs and ideologies around how uh, a healthy MEV ecosystem uh, looks like, um, and we want to support them in uh, sort of integrating into this um, this uh, cross domain um, MEV future in a way that um, that uh, provides sort of a similar um, experience. Um, yeah, the other place that we were looking for for collaboration with partners is is on this um, this order flow uh, challenge. So both the cross domain and the order flow um, um, uh, problems of MEV are ones where I think um, will end up being much bigger than than flashbots and solving, and and we want to collaborate with um, with third parties. So maybe another topic I did want to touch on. So. The, the focus of flashbots, right, is, is as we talked about, you know, making MV transparent, making it democratized, like kind of uh, spreading the value to the maybe at the end. But of course, another a very different sort of philosophical approach to MEV can also be, oh, 
can we basically try to remove MEV? Can we try to minimize MEV? Uh, you know, for example, you have, you definitely have some application specific chains, like let's say osmosis, you know, that's like thinking very much uh, of doing, you know, going in that direction. I know there's also another kind of Cosmos related project, Enoma, that's like kind of thinking of stuff like that. I think I also saw there's something on Ethereum or on E3 search, right? This shutterized beacon chain or like some idea that like, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you think like minimizing MEV is like, should be purely the sort of the problem of the application developer or like, you know, the smart contracts that are being written, the, the AMM, or does it make sense for a blockchain to try to, you know, kind of, um, actively minimize MEV? It's a, it's a difficult question to, to answer, right? And it is sort of the, um, the perennial question of MEV. How, how do we deal with it? What is the like, right way to approach the, the problem? Um, I think Hasu gives a, a really good presentation on this, which is called Why Your Blockchain Needs an MEV Solution. Um, and, and in that presentation, he looks at all these different approaches to mitigating um, uh, MEV, right? From random ordering to first in, first out ordering to uh, try to do like threshold encryption and, and sort of obfuscation um, and uh, identifies what are the externalities of those solutions. And I think that's really how um, uh, uh, blockchain developers right, uh, need to think uh, about uh, MEV is what, um, what are the characteristics of the system that they want to build? What is the nature of the, the MEV that, uh, that they expose? And what are the externalities that they are willing to tolerate? Um, are they okay with their chain getting spammed um, whenever there's like an MEV opportunity that occurs? Um, or is that too much of a negative impact on user experience uh, or does it like have the risk of DDoSing the chain down completely, uh, like we've seen on on several chains uh, happen? And so, you know, maybe that's not the best design uh, uh, to to follow. Um, are they okay with uh, having sort of co-location be heavily incentivized, um, which obviously leads to then more validator centralization? Right. So a lot of these uh, first in first out systems, uh, that's that's the the end result uh, of of those systems is. You incentivize bot operators to be tightly uh, co-located with um, with the validators to be able to be the first to extract the the opportunity, and so it creates more centralization at the validator level. Maybe for some chains this is okay, maybe for others uh, it isn't. Um, so it is it is about thinking it is about thinking about trade offs, uh, figuring out what are the properties uh, that um, the, the the developer wants uh, their chain to have, and then select the solutions that um, that support that. I think, you know, looking just at the, the Ethereum uh, ecosystem, the best way for Ethereum to mitigate um, sort of MEV and, and to reduce it is for application developers to put more effort and time into thinking about how their applications expose MEV, um, to think about, um, you know, what service are they providing to their users and is sort of what they're doing sort of abusive in some ways towards, um, towards their users. I think there's a big risk here because uh, a lot of, um, I think, applications and wallets are seeing MEV as this sort of hidden revenue generation model, right? Um, so the way, the way that 
you know, wallets can start thinking about MEV to say, okay, I have all this transaction flow from users that has some value. I'm able to sell this transaction flow to um, to some uh, bot operators um, and and receive some uh, some fee for this. That now gives me a way to to monetize. Um, but that is that is very very dangerous because. Um, you know, it's not transparent to the user how much uh, value is being captured from them uh, by the wallet, by the service. Um, it's not just like a, a transparent fee that the, the, the user is, is paying. It's, uh, it's a hidden fee uh, that could be arbitrarily large and can grow over time uh, without, without the user knowing. Yeah, I think that was a super interesting discussion. I think I wanted to like kind of take it back to like the practical timeline dimension Vasily you mentioned Lido is ready uh, for the merge maybe we can talk a little bit about you know where is MEV boost right now um, you know how are the preparations for the merge going and uh, maybe here's some estimates of when the merge is happening from you guys <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so like Lido is merge ready uh whether the mv boost or not uh, is ready or not so like it's uh, it doesn't uh, have uh, mv boost as a critical dependency we want to uh, to start running with it uh it's not like if merge was happening today it wouldn't be possible for uh, i think uh, like a decent part of our operators because it's not supported by all the clients yet it's not uh, uh, like if we, if it was happening like tomorrow, uh, we would have to uh, run a lot of stake in Lido without maybe boost, whether we wanted or not, uh, because it's not uh, fully ready yet. We don't need it to be fully ready yet to to be merge ready. We can just accept the vanilla algorithms of uh, like fee uh, prioritization transaction fees. Uh, the fees auction, which is not like exactly great, but works for us and like works for Ethereum. And like we used to run like multiple years on, on just that without uh, flashbots, and it wasn't great, but it was like it was working. So uh, if we have to fall back to that, we can. So that's one side of it. Uh, the other side is we run test nets. We ask operators to run test nets. We ask operators to uh, to be merge ready to uh, to try out MEV boost uh, uh, where, whether they can. And uh, uh, the policy draft we have is basically stating that MEV boost is important. Um, the blockers are like the general raw-ish state of ME boost. Uh, they're not having support from all the clients yet for ME boost. Uh, and uh, uh, the relay list that we we have to uh, to start with. Uh, relay can be a malicious thing. We can't do permissionless uh, work with relays uh, in Lido. We have to create the list and uh, that also has to happen before uh, we can adopt uh, MEV Boost fully. No, yeah, I think, yeah, Stefan, if you have anything to add on, on your end. Yeah, I think the, the important thing to, to mention here is, um, you know, MEV Boost is a piece of software that's designed to work with an extremely large set of stakeholders. 
right? And we have all the different client uh, teams that need to integrate it. There's all these different node operators everywhere from single uh, solo stakers to, to, um, to large node operators, service providers to um, the, the staking pools and, and decentralized staking pools. They all have different sort of uh, requirements for how this, how this system works. So what we've done is we've put together this page called boost.flashbots.net. Um, and it's the best place to uh, keep track of, um, of the readiness of all of these different actors uh, or stakeholders with regards to, to the MEV Boost software. Um, it's also the best place to keep track of sort of active development uh, of, of MEV Boost. So, you know, if the merge was tomorrow, uh, it would be possible to, um, to run uh, MEV Boost. Uh, it just wouldn't necessarily have all the features that all of these uh, stakeholders care about. Um, and so there's sort of a development roadmap for MEV Boost that, that includes iteratively uh, shipping more of these, um, more of these features uh, that will make it uh, uh, better suited for, for the needs of, of all the stakeholders. Um, and all of those updates are, are posted on that, um, on that landing page. So yeah, it is, a, it is a work in progress, just as Ethereum is a, is a work in progress. Uh, and so um, over, over time, it becomes, um, it becomes more and more feature complete, uh, but it is uh, sort of ready to, uh, to operate um, at the merge. Cool. Well, thanks so much, uh, guys, for joining us today. It was really, uh, really enjoyed this discussion. I think it was super helpful to understand, uh, you know, where things are going. It's obviously an area of enormous complexity, and we're just seeing like the complexity is only getting bigger when we talk about, you know, these other parts of the MEV supply chain and having different markets there and here. So. I think this will be a topic where we can continue doing podcasts on for many years to come. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, Stefan and Vasily, for joining us today. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was a great discussion. Thank you. And uh, thanks so much for listeners for tuning in. If you want to support the show, make sure to leave us an iTunes review or let us know your comments, the episode on Twitter, YouTube, and we look forward to being back next week. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter and please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much. And we look forward to being back next week. <laughs>